I want to read to you from the Baptist Faith and Message a line from Article 15. In Article 15 of the BFM 2000, it says, We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Later on in the Baptist Faith and Message in Article 18, it says, Children from the moment of conception are a blessing and heritage from the Lord. And when we look at what our statement of faith says, um, and not only this, but even throughout history, positions Christians have advocated for on this matter, um, it is helpful for us to say we're using this word abortion and we're thinking about reasoning from a Christian perspective and being grounded in the Bible, thinking about what our statement of faith teaches. What exactly are we talking about? And so the definition of abortion, quite simply, is the ending of the life of an unborn child through a means, through a means, some sort of procedure or perhaps a pill that ends the life of an unborn child in the womb. Now, how is an abortion performed? Well, there are various ways. Um, Some abortions are performed with abortion pills, especially during the opening weeks of someone's uh, understanding that they are pregnant. Other abortions are performed during an in-clinic visit with the assistance of medical staff. This involves, in this latter category, the most grotesque of means and methods to end the life of the unborn child. This is not easy to read and may not be easy to hear, but we need to read and hear it. From a South Carolina health website, it says that a common method when a woman is pregnant between 6 and 14 weeks along, sometimes a suction curatage method is performed, and it involves a suction machine into the uterus, which is emptied by the suction mechanism, removing what they call the products of pregnancy, which, of course, that is the baby. That's what the products of the pregnancy is. And then an instrument that scrapes the walls of the uterus to remove any other parts that remain after the fetus is removed. Another method, more, much more uh, serious in its graphic nature, is sometimes uh, abbreviated as the D and C, dilation and curatage method. And this involves a steel-shaped loop and knife Uh, which is inserted into the uterus to cut parts of the baby's body apart and then remove with sharp metal jaws. If the woman is far enough along and the the baby is grown enough, a procedure called a D&E is used, a dilation and extraction procedure, where the mother's cervix is dilated and strong instruments um, are going to be used to grab onto limbs of the baby's body and to twist until they tear and can be physically removed. Um, one, of the, one of the roles that the abortionist will have at this point is to um, begin to bring as much of the baby as possible, with the exception of the head, out of the uterus, to then use a pair of scissors and stab into the back of the baby's head in order to make a hole in the skull. And the abortionist then sticks a suction tube into the skull to remove the brain and is then able to crush the skull and twist off any remaining parts. This, of course, will then be followed up by um, instruments to scrape the walls of the uterus. Um, These things are not easy to hear and read. But if you were to say, what is an abortion? You need to know what it is you are talking about, what it is that is done. And if you have never seen pictures 
of what it looks like when someone has performed an abortion, you should see those. And that is because graphic and pictured um, results can do for the, ima- for the moral imagination and the conscience in a powerful way. What sometimes words aim at trying to describe, trying to get you a sense of here's what we're talking about. And it's a whole other level of horror to see it. Now, there are many statistics on abortion and a number of facts that I want to provide you in this second part here. And um, it is good news that overall the amount of abortions in the United States has decreased in the recent years. It, uh, here's a quote from a Christian resource website on abortion. A chemical abortion involves an abortion pill, which at this point accounts for 54% of abortions as of 2020. So before 2020, most abortions were not performed by a pill, but from 1973 to 2020, most abortions were performed in clinic with those instruments and methods that I just described to you. And since 1973, 63 million babies have been aborted. That's more than the population of multiple states combined. It is a staggering, staggering number. Um, In May 2022, the U.S. Senate tried to pass what would have been their most uh, pro-abortion bill offered. The bill advocated the most radical abortion measures to allow abortion on demand any time from the woman's pregnancy being discerned up to the moment before delivery. Which, of course, you're dealing with 8 to 10 pound children. Uh, You're dealing with children whose heart has been beating many months and whose brain is very active. Uh, who can feel pain and who makes all sorts of facial expressions and sucks their thumb and all the rest. Um, Now, this legislation did not pass, but had it passed, it would have not only granted that, it would have invalidated state laws that limit abortions to 20 weeks. So that particular bill that was introduced was of great concern uh, for people thinking about justice for the unborn. Other facts about abortion include the following. Um, Black Americans make up only 13% of the U.S. population, and yet black babies are aborted at three times the rate of white babies and constitute more than one-third of all abortions. This is staggering. And one of the methods is um, promoted by the founder of Planned Parenthood named Margaret Sanger was to actually target with Planned Parenthood locations these communities where they would believe a majority black population would be. And what she said is to, in a letter to Dr. Clarence Gamble in December of 1939, we don't want the word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And she despised large families, the founder of Planned Parenthood. She said in one uh, record, the most merciful thing the large family can do to one of its infant members would be to kill it. She spoke at multiple Ku Klux Klan rallies and um, was, was, uh, was, was quite a figure in her day to lead in these areas. In recent years, more black babies in New York City have been aborted than born and raised, um, which is just astounding. The majority of Americans support limits on abortion. Now, it's quite a spectrum 
you would not get a majority of Americans or even a wide consensus to say, oh, it's definitely this or that from state to state. Um, But it is the case that the majority of Americans are not in favor of abortion up to the moment before delivery. In fact, the majority of Americans support limits. During a recent poll, 70% of Americans would limit it to the first three months, the first trimester. Nearly half of those who identify as pro-choice even support restrictions to some degree. Which is why the recent bill earlier this year proposed in the Senate is quite shocking because it would go against even half of pro-choice advocates to argue for abortion from the moment of conception all the way to the moment before delivery. It is important to recognize as well the majority of pro-life Christians are women. And sometimes uh, a pro-choice advocate uh, a pro-abortion uh, advocate might, might act as if pro-life arguments attack and demean women and restrict, restrict women and inhibit their freedom. When the majority of pro-life voices are female voices arguing the opposite. In fact, a 2021 Gallup poll found that the more economically vulnerable people of color were, they were significantly more anti-abortion than many rich white people, which is interesting to consider along the rest of this, too. Now, what would be arguments for abortion? There are more than eight For our time, I want to think about these eight, what the Bible says, what science says, and how we might respond to these arguments. And to highlight each of these, in order to read through them, I want to make a couple comments, a couple sentences about each of these, and we'll return to them in short order. The arguments for abortion include the following. It's my body. Sometimes this can be um, lengthened to my body, my choice, something like that. And it's, a, it's a, an appeal to one's individual liberty. You should not tell me what to do with my body. It's my body. Number two, the fetus isn't human. Um, the fetus isn't a person. Abortion is legal. The baby is unwanted. The baby could be the result of rape or incest. You shouldn't interfere in a woman's health care. Abortion is a simple and safe solution. And as I said, more than these eight exist. These are among the most common that you could hear. And um, there are reasons that certain arguments among these eight seem compelling in our culture. But it's just helpful to take a second to pause, to zoom out and say, all right, the things that direct us, both in God's general revelation that we can discern through scientific and medical mechanisms, as well as God's special revelation in Holy Scripture, What can we know? What can we know that can help us think about this matter? Let's consider what the Bible says. First of all, the Bible treats unborn babies as human beings. The Exodus law involves killing, um, involves applying a penalty when a pregnant woman is killed in Exodus chapter 21. Not only because the woman herself dies, but she herself is pregnant in Exodus 21, which requires a legal means of addressing that. In uh, Psalm 139, there is language about the Lord forming and knitting in the womb the child. 
Uh, recently, someone had brought to my attention a Christological point that I had never thought of before. And to say that when uh, the Holy Spirit overshadows the Virgin Mary and she conceives and will bear a child, the argument Christologically must be that from the moment of the incarnation, we have a human Jesus. And not some many months or weeks or months later in the gestation process, an eventual and full humanity, but rather from the start. And so this particular pastor who was making this point said, you could say that one implication of a pro-abortion stance would lead into Christological heresy about who you believe Jesus to be, which is interesting to consider. Um, So the Bible treats unborn babies as human beings, and human beings are made in the image of God. The Bible teaches this in Genesis 1. So the first page of the Bible, we are confronted with God making humanity in his image male and female. In Genesis chapter 9, after the fall, the likeness of man is upheld such that if an unlawful or unjust taking of human life happens, by man shall shall blood be shed of that perpetrator. Um, in, in other words, in Genesis 1 before the fall and in Genesis 9 after the fall, human beings as image bearers are endowed with dignity and honor because they are human beings, because they are created by God. And in James chapter 3, we see that in that long chapter about the tongue and speech that we praise with our tongue the Lord and with our tongue curse people made in his likeness. Again, emphasizing that both in the Old and New Testament, our likeness or image-bearing status is not nullified by the fall. It continues. We also know according to Genesis 9 and Exodus 20 with the commandment, you shall not murder, that the unjust taking of human life is murder. So God has made people in his image They are made image bearers from the beginning. They do not become image bearers later in their humanity or in some later state after the fall lose their humanity. And the unjust taking of human life is called murder. We are called to protect the vulnerable, the weak, and the defenseless. The Old and the New Testament could be mustered from both the chapters of the Torah all the way to the application of the gospel in the letter writers in the New Testament. So from start to finish in the Bible, the biblical worldview is an advocacy toward lifting up and helping those weak and defenseless and vulnerable. You could suggest, and I think you could make a strong case, that few can be thought of as in a more vulnerable situation. And in a more defenseless situation than the baby in the womb. Dr. Timothy George at Beeson Divinity School in Alabama said the sanctity of life for every person, including the preborn, the weak, the elderly, every single one of whom is made in the image of God. They are irreducibly precious in the sight of God, worthy of respect and protection. This, I think, is an effort to think biblically about all of life, starting with when life starts. So let's consider science. When does life begin? Thinking biblically, we now consider in Roman numeral 5 what science says. A recent poll of 5,577 biologists affirmed with 96% in the result that human life begins at fertilization. These were not Christian biologists. These were 5,577 biologists that would say in nearly every case of the uh, people who answered it that life begins at fertilization. 
In fact, embryologists at Princeton University published a piece entitled, Life Begins at Fertilization with the Embryo's Conception. That's the title of it. That's a long title, but you know they're not burying the lead there. It's just right there in the title. Life Begins at Fertilization with the Embryo's Conception. From the American College of Pediatricians, an abstract to an article reads the following way. The predominance of human biological research confirms life begins at conception, fertilization. At fertilization, the human being emerges as a whole, genetically distinct, individuated, zygotic, living human organism. A member of the species Homo sapiens, needing only the proper environment in order to grow and develop. The difference I think this is especially interesting. The American College of Pediatricians in their article says the following. The difference between the individual in its adult stage and in its zygotic stage is one of form, not nature. One of form, not nature. Meaning that they are smaller, less developed, as you would expect. But in regard to development, at eight weeks of gestation, all the organs are present in the baby. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidney is cleaning fluids. And the finger has a fingerprint. Why does this matter at acknowledging these features at eight weeks? Because almost all abortions happen later than eight weeks. When all of these various things are known. The marvel, as one writer called it, of ultrasound technology has provided a stunning window, he says, into the womb that can show at eight weeks old, babies sucking their thumbs, recoiling from being pricked, responding to sound in the womb. Doctors can note that the heart of the fetus is beating between five to six weeks. Most women realize they're pregnant somewhere between four to six weeks of fetal development. So in the time when that heart is beating, and then not long after that, when all of these other very peculiar and distinct details are known because of technology we can see the baby with. When does a child feel pain? In 2020, the Journal of Medical Ethics published an article with information that the fetus can feel pain as early as 12 weeks old. There are no procedures of surgery done on the unborn when doctors wouldn't use anesthesia for the unborn child in such surgery. Abortion is the only procedure without anesthesia for the preborn child. In fact, um, as one writer put it, doctors treating unborn babies view them as patients, and abortionists do not. Though they would be the same number of weeks old, They're just on the table for different reasons. The Bible and science are in sync, which is we, as we understand natural and general revelation correctly, we would understand that it would absolutely confirm what Scripture has taught about the dignity and value and beginning of human life. So we would not be surprised as Christians and thinking theologically about these matters that these medical and scientific truths are true. So how should we respond to arguments for abortion? And this is where we want to spend the bulk of our time on this Roman numeral. Answering the arguments for abortion. Very commonly said, my body, my choice. 
Or this is um, my body. Who are you to tell me what to do with my body? So this is language that is sometimes put in the category of I am more empowered because I can make decisions about my body. You are taking away empowerment or removing freedoms by restricting. Now to say this is my body and you can't tell me what to do with my body isn't quite true generally speaking for male or female. Laws tell us all the time what we cannot do with our bodies toward other people. For instance, the law tells me I can't use my body to steal something from you. And the law tells me that I can't use this particular instrument to go over here to this person who frustrated you on the road and take their life. The law tells me that I can't do this particular thing with my body and offers this restriction. Not because they're trying to squelch the banner of individual freedom, but because the presence of human dignity and respect is required for a functioning and civil society. And so our individual freedoms always bump up against restrictions and good ones, good moral boundaries. So sometimes this language about my body, my choice is given other phrases like the right to choose or reproductive freedom. But there are many things you're not permitted to do with your body that are regulated by the law. The question is not even about the woman's body because the baby could be born and then offered for adoption. In fact, an abortion takes the life of the baby's body, not the body of the woman. Except in the most rare of cases where an abortion can indeed result in the death of the woman with something going terribly wrong. But in general, when you think of my body, my choice, you might be thinking about something that's pertaining to your own body. But really what the woman is doing is making a choice about a body that isn't her body. In other words, at birth, she still has her body and the body that was in her body is no longer there. My body, my choice can sound like a clever slogan, but there are so many problems with that. What about the question, the issue of, well, the fetus isn't human? And this is truly believed by uh, certain pro-choice advocates who would say, well, I'm not even convinced of the humanity of this. It just looks like a blob of cells or just a blob of goop, just a blob. If someone would be hesitant to call a fetus a human, and by using the word fetus, we're using a medical term to refer to the, the unborn or, uh, or small nature of something in a species. So a fetus does not tell you something isn't human, human, it's telling you it's a small or preborn something. So what is it? Well, if someone is hesitant to say that a fetus inside a woman would be human, then you might be able to say, as one writer did, then what are the fetus's parents? That'll give us some good direction. Logically, In other words, is the mother a human and is the father a human? And if what you have is a human and a human producing a fetus, then you're not going to be surprised on the day of the birth when a human being is born. In other words, it's not a surprise. A man and a woman don't announce their pregnancy and the friends say, I wonder what it'll be this time, you know. In fact, you know instinctively that they are pregnant with a human being. A fetus isn't human? Well, that argument doesn't stand up to reasoning in a medical or logical sense. The fetus isn't human. It's not just a blob of cells. It's alive. One person who talked on the subject of abortion was, uh, was dealing with someone who said uh, that they didn't even consider this to be a, a living thing. And the speaker said, then why is an abortion necessary? There wouldn't be any need for abortion if this isn't living. We know the fetus is alive because the fetus grows and develops, which is what living things do. 
We know this as human because from the beginning, the baby has distinct DNA, fingerprints that will develop, a heart that will start beating, brain waves that will be detected. John Piper reasons this way. We know what we're doing, he says, because 38 states, including Minnesota, treat the killing of an unborn child as a form of homicide. These states have what are called fetal homicide laws. We have fetal homicide laws for blobs of cells. Probably that's not what's true. So Piper's suggestion is we all know we know what we're doing. We know what's in the baby, what's in the mother's womb. This is a living human being. And someone might say, number three, well, the fetus isn't a person. Well, have you ever met a human being that isn't a person? And I just want you to think about what's being suggested here. It was at some point down the line, personhood is a thing that you come to have that you did not have at some earlier stage. Have you ever met a human being that's not a person? Finding some kind of class of humans that aren't persons This is an effort to say, well, we can see that this is a human being, but worthy of protection and rights, that's what you give to a person, and so we're going to deny a status of personhood. Well, we've seen in history how this goes. Tim Challies put together a series of legal pronouncements in history that I want to review with you. In 1858, the Virginia Supreme Court said, in the eyes of the law, the slave is not a person. In 1881, the American Law Review said an Indian is not a person within the meaning of the Constitution. In 1928, the Canada Supreme Court said the meaning of qualified persons doesn't include women. In 1936, the Germany Supreme Court said the Reich itself refused to recognize Jews as persons in the legal sense. In 1997, the Canada Supreme Court said the law of Canada does not recognize the unborn child as a legal person possessing rights. I think Dr. Seuss is right. A person's a person no matter how small. In an article by Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, they said, just as past societies once classified some human beings as non-persons, so today we classify a segment of humanity as non-persons based on their age and their size, their location, and their stage of development. John Piper is right when he says the five-foot frame of a teenage son no more guarantees his right to life than the 23-inch frame of his little sister his mom is holding. Size is morally irrelevant. One inch, 23 inches, 68 inches. When you just think about the size component, it's staggering that this would be used to determine what qualifies as something worthy of protection and what doesn't. Scott Klusendorf says, Also, how does a simple journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform the essential nature of the fetus from non-person to person? And he gives an illustration that if I were to move from this location up at the front to that location in the back, I'm the same person who was here as I was over there. And the idea of some magical happenstance that occurs, that if you only had cameras to see what's happening metaphysically, where the baby passes from the birth canal, not a person, not a person, not a person. You realize how absolutely ridiculous that is. What kind of superstition and magical stuff do we think is happening? That was a person seconds ago as well. Many people would make an argument about personhood as something conditioned or linked to function, cognizance, dependency. 
And they might say things like, well, you know, the baby is dependent on the mother in the womb or right, right outside the womb. And, you know, personhood, really, we want to offer a definition of independence, independent functionality. Of course, once you, once you start that criteria, that's a train off the rails quite quickly. What about people who are on respirators? What about people who have dementia? What about people who have to be on dialysis to keep living? It, the unborn can't be disqualified from being persons due to their dependency. Because that would, by implication, begin to put many adults in the category of non-persons. In fact, morally and biblically, the more dependent someone is, the more responsibility you ought to feel to protect them, not less responsibility. The more vulnerable and defenseless one is, the more you ought to be compelled to come alongside and aid and defend, not less responsibility. Even the argument of dependency doesn't get you very far if that is made for uh, a pro-abortion stance. Because even after birth, babies are quite dependent. What, are babies born and then they go and get a job in an apartment? No. You're taking care of that baby. That baby is quite dependent. In fact, you might be working harder to take care of that baby afterward than beforehand. Despite all of the uh, toll that the years, the years, the months of pregnancy, though it might seem like years for some, months of pregnancy can take. Babies are quite dependent after birth. And we would be horrified if someone said, well, you know, my one-year-old, they're just more dependent than I thought they were, and so I want the means to execute them. Well, we would be horrified by that. That person would not be lauded as an example of reproductive freedom. This person would not be considered someone that ought to be um, involved in policy making and all the rest. We would be horrified and hope that the authorities would put them in jail. Kevin DeYoung puts it this way. If an expression of mental acuity is necessary to be a member of the human race, what do we do with the comatose or the very old or the 50-year-old mom with Alzheimer's? You see, once you start making personhood contingent on some state of mental acuity or physical function, you don't get to stop with babies. Your reasoning doesn't have the ability to stop with babies. And that's why so many um, countries around the world, I say many, I don't have a number off the top of my head for you, but countries around the world are fine with not stopping at babies. Stephen Schwartz has a small acronym called SLED that he says we should remember. S-L-E-D. And he says each of these letters stand for something that doesn't make someone a person. The S stands for size. Though the unborn are smaller than you, just as the American College of Pediatricians said, um, the difference between the adult and uh, the fertilized uh, embryo is not nature. Just form. Just give it time. The unborn are simply smaller, and that does not qualify or disqualify someone from personhood. The L stands for level of development. The unborn are not yet as developed as we are, yes, but that does not determine your humanity. The E stands for environment. They are located in a different place than we are. They are inside a womb, but the location doesn't decide their humanity. And D stands for their dependency. The unborn are dependent. But dependency doesn't determine your humanity. Number four, 
abortion is legal. The fourth argument here, abortion is legal. Now, this particular thing um, is true for many states in the country. But I want to think about 1973 for a moment. In 1973, the decision on Roe v. Wade involved an appeal to what was called the right of privacy, looking toward the 14th Amendment. And the argument was that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment provided a fundamental right of privacy between a woman and her doctor, her liberty to deal with her fetus as she saw fit. The problem is, if you read in the 14th Amendment, there is no expression of right to privacy there at all. In fact, there are certain freedoms that the 14th Amendment talks about, but in 1973, the Supreme Court implied a right to privacy of a woman and her doctor, which is not specified in the 14th Amendment. What the 14th Amendment does say actually is quite interesting. And uh, if you have not read the 14th Amendment recently, here's what part of it says. The state shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. I think rather than using the 14th Amendment to support abortion, the 14th Amendment actually protects the rights of the unborn. In fact, the opinion writer in 1973 was named Harry Blackman. Here's what Harry Blackman said in his opinion in 1973. If personhood could be established for the unborn, he says the case for abortion, quote, collapses. For the fetus's right to life would be guaranteed by by the amendment. 1973. And yet there is no medical or logical or philosophical reason to compellingly argue for the fetus to be human and not a person. And the 14th Amendment ensures that no human being should be denied basic constitutional rights. I think constitutionally this includes, not excludes, the unborn. And so what the decision recently, last Friday, um, made the case for is that there was no constitutional right, but one was manufactured in 1973. I think that's the correct understanding of the legal evidence. The U.S. Constitution has the evidence against abortion, not easily or eagerly including it. Number five, the baby is unwanted. What about this argument? The baby is unwanted. That's quite a subjective stance. Well, I don't want the baby. John Piper puts it this way. When the unborn are wanted, they're treated as children and patients. When they're unwanted, they're not treated as children or patients at all. It's like a thing that's in the way. The want or or unwanted status of a child is not a moral argument. That is indeed the subjective posture of many who might find themselves pregnant. I don't want this child. One writer puts it this way. It's illegal to take the life of the unborn if the mother wants the baby. But it's legal to take the life of the unborn if she doesn't. In the first case, the law treats the fetus as a human with rights. And in the second case, the law treats the fetus as non-human with no rights. That's so subjective, isn't it? The wanting or the not wanting is not decisive on whether it is right or wrong. That is the more fundamental question, isn't it? Well, I don't want the baby. That's not the issue of rightness or wrongness, justice or injustice. The deeper question is on those matters. Number six, the baby could be the result of rape or incest. And I think in the years that I've heard people arguing pro-abortion, 
This is one of the things thrown into the mix almost immediately, if not shortly after a conversation like that begins. And I think it's helpful to consider the following response. Let's set aside rape or incest. Do you think abortion would be wrong in every other case? And I think if you were arguing with a typical pro-choice position, they are not okay with stopping at rape or incest cases. So if you were to say, all right, let's just figure out, you know, where our differences lie. So let's set aside rape and incest. Do you think abortion in all the other cases is wrong? I think that answer could be quite revealing on whether the rape and incest issue is a smokescreen being used. That's not to say it's not a serious issue, but here are some facts. The pro-abortion Guttmacher Institute has shown that only 1% of abortions are obtained in cases of rape. 1%. Florida in 2020 is one of only a few states that report reasons for abortion. In 2020, women reported abortions for incest 0.01%. Women in 2020 in Florida reported Abortion for rape, 0.15% of the time. Which means that nearly 99% of the cases had nothing to do with rape or incest. And that study in Florida speaks to the more general reality across the country. It's quite a tipping of the, of the conversation to immediately go to those cases. I think Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis are correct. Even in the case of rape, which is a horrible violation of a woman's dignity, bodily integrity, personal autonomy, and rightful liberty, justice requires respecting the unborn child's life because the unborn child did nothing wrong. The unborn child was not the rapist and is the mother's child. One writer considers it this way. In a rape that leads to a pregnancy, you now have three individuals. The woman, the rapist, and the unborn child. And two of them are innocent. The unborn child and the woman. And the rapist should face severe penalty. Amen. The guilty one should be punished, but not the innocent. Number seven, you shouldn't interfere with a woman's health care. You shouldn't interfere with a woman's health care. Even using the word health care for this subject is an interesting word to choose, but it is the word sometimes used in that vernacular. It, it makes it sound like, well, you know, I wanted to have this tumor removed and you're getting in the way of my health care. Or I had this wound that I needed to go get stitched up and, you know, I don't want you to interfere with my health care. I think pro life advocate Bruce Ashford is right. Abortion is not health care because a fetus is not a disease. When we think of an organ being repaired or something on our body uh, receiving health care, we are thinking differently now in the subject of abortion because this is a body that isn't my body. It's not like something on the back of your hand that you want to get checked out. It's not like some mark or lesion or wound or whatever somewhere on your body. 
this is something with DNA different from yours. This is something that may have a different gender from yours as well. If you're the mother and you're having a son. You think about all the differences that I rattled off for you earlier medically. You realize that the woman's health care should, should be considered along with the fetus's health care. And doing what is in the best interest of the individuals. What about number eight? The abortion is a simple and safe solution. I see this on pro-choice websites. Dealing with the health care of the mother, they say, abortion is a simple and safe solution. Some of the methods that I spoke about at the beginning of our time only take 15 minutes. More extreme measures that are taken for a baby that is further along in the mother's womb, they can take a much longer time because of certain medicines and, uh, and, and uh, shots and IVs that have to be administered. But abortion is a simple and safe procedure. I mean, I've talked over the years with mothers who have dealt with the emotional and psychological toll that having an abortion has taken. And I've talked with people who would have been fathers of those children where those children's life were taken by abortionists. And simple and safe are not the words to use. In fact, according to Dr. Donna Harrison, who's the executive director of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians, that's a, long, that's a mouthful I know, but Dr. Donna Harrison says the following, late-term abortions are more dangerous for the mother than giving birth. Late-term abortions involve higher risk of death from the abortion itself, as well as higher, as higher risk of perforating the womb, massive bleeding, damage to the womb. There are women who have gone to have abortions and have found themselves unable to have future children. But the abortion lobby does target women with language like simple, safe. Now we've considered eight arguments. We've thought about what science says, what the Bible says, thinking as much as we can about certain logical responses and questions to push back against certain positions. But let's think about more broadly what we would consider a Christian position. Christians biblically care about the vulnerable, the defenseless, and should care about justice. And when we think about injustice committed throughout history, when we think about people who were given a status of non-persons and how those people were treated by the strong and the people who were deemed persons, we can see the horrible lessons of history. It is quite convenient that all advocates for abortion were themselves people who were born. Those are the only people that can advocate for it. But who's going to advocate for the unborn? Christians should care about justice and the idea biblically, both in the Old and New Testament, that the intentional killing of an innocent human being is wrong. That's a big takeaway right there. It's not quite bumper sticker length. You know, it's quite long. It's a few bumper stickers. But the intentional killing of an innocent human being is wrong. The baby in the womb is innocent. The baby in the womb is a person. The baby is a living person. The baby is a human being. The intentional killing of an innocent human being is wrong. Inside the womb and outside the womb. We should not do that. Because people are made in the image of God and a person's a person no matter how small. A baby in a womb grows because it is alive. Development begins at conception. The embryo is human. From the beginning, the baby's body is not the mother's body. Separate limbs, organs, DNA. The baby has done nothing to justify ending its life. 
You should know that when Christianity began to flourish in the first century, it flourished in the midst of a very anti-baby culture. It's well documented historically that the Roman culture was a culture that practiced abortion and thought very lowly of children. Abortion was rampant in ancient Rome, and Jews and Christians opposed it. One example from Cicero records in Roman law that deformed infants shall be killed. Roman law, like deformed infants shall be killed. Is there something physically that was not quite right at the birth? The law declares that they shall be put to death. Just gives you a little sense and a taste of the brutality in the culture. Now, the earliest documents outside the Bible of Christian faith and practice include a document called the Didache. And in the Didache, and in chapter 2, it says Christians are those who will not practice abortion and infanticide. Infanticide is the murder of the born child. So practicing abortion and infanticide is a way of saying Christians are those who will not kill small children, either before they are born or after they are born. In the 100s, around 130 A.D., a document called the Letter of Barnabas says, You shall not abort a child nor commit infanticide. In other words, I wouldn't want you to think that somewhere across the span of history, Christians began reasoning biblically and theologically and came to a pro-life position. I just want you to know this is a position within the early church in ancient Rome. You should just know the rootedness of this. Christians have started almost every pregnancy center that exists. In the history of starting hospitals, that was begun by Christians. Christians adopt children at two times the national average of non-Christians. Christians are more generous to the poor and to the vulnerable than the rest of the population in general. So if someone says, this could be a ninth argument... Um, you know, you should be pro-choice because, you know, who's going to provide any sort of support or advocacy along the way? Well, over and over again, culturally and historically, Christians have consistently stepped up to the plate. It is not a perfect situation. Oh, no, there are gaps that need to be filled. There are new centers that need to be built. There are fledgling Areas of support that need to be buttressed and better funded. But it is the Christian position to advocate for, care for, and love life from fertilization unto death. Let's pray.